Hello and welcome to the FIC podcast where you'll hear teaching and resources for church leaders to help independent churches work together to reach Britain for Christ. Many of the coronavirus restrictions across Britain have now been relaxed. What does this mean for churches now and in the future? FIC National Director John Stevens and FIC Scotland Director Andy Hunter give an update and summary of the current coronavirus guidance for Scotland, Wales and England and consider what ministry might look like in the coming months. Um, as ever, I want to turn us to God's Word as we um, start our webinar. We've been looking at uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, thinking about foundations for gospel ministry. And um, this morning um, we come to 1 Thessalonians 2 verses 10 to 13. So let me um, read that. You are witnesses and so is God of how holy, righteous and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children encouraging, comforting and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. So we've been seeing here in um, 1 Thessalonians, Paul speaks about the ministry that he and his team engaged in as a model of faithful gospel ministry. Last week, we were looking at verse 7, where we saw that um, Paul spoke about how they had loved the people, not simply preached the gospel to them, but shared their lives with them and been willing to work hard to provide for themselves. And I think here in um, verses uh, 10 to 12, um, the uh, next element of faithful gospel ministry is that Paul and his team urged the Thessalonians to live lives worthy of God. He urged them to live lives worthy of God. And the reminder for us here is that gospel ministry is more than simply calling people to conversion. Gospel ministry is calling people to conversion and godly uh, living. And uh, uh, Paul um, speaks in these verses of, I think, three key ways in which he and his team did that, how they called people to godly living. Three things that we're to do. First thing we learn is be an example, be an example. So in verse 10, we see that Paul and his team gave an embodied example of godliness. He says, your witnesses and so is God of how holy, righteous and blameless we were amongst you. Um, who believed. Paul is not calling them to do something that he and his team did not do themselves. They lived this life of holiness, that is um, purity and consecration to God, of righteousness, that is doing justice in their lives, of blamelessness, um, not doing anything that would deserve um, a sort of judgment. Um, and so Paul has set them um, an example. And I don't know if you notice this, but just verse 10, I think the really striking word is how how holy, how righteous, how blameless. These uh, leaders set them the highest standard in their example. And if we're going to call our congregations to godliness, we need to be those who are living lives of such holiness, righteousness and blamelessness that we can call people to follow our example. So be an example. Secondly, give encouragement. That's really um, verse 11. Uh, Paul and his team gave exhortation to godliness. The image that Paul uses is of a father dealing with his children, uh, a father dealing with his sons. In the ancient world, mothers were responsible for caring for uh, infants. And then at a certain young age, responsibility was handed over to fathers to train their sons to maturity. And actually, Paul says that in Thessalonica, his team did both. We saw um, last week that they were like mothers caring um, for infants. They took care of the new converts. But then, like fathers, they encouraged um, onto uh, maturity. And uh, uh, see the words that Paul uses, encouraging, comforting and urging. People need to be um, uh, exhorted. 
to uh, live lives uh, of godliness. And Paul did both of those things as part of his ministry. He didn't beat them up. He didn't make them feel guilty and inadequate. Instead, he urged uh, them on. And then uh, finally, verse 12, focus on eschatology, focus on eschatology. Paul and his team gave eschatological motivation for godliness. I think as we seek to um, uh, encourage people to be godly, one of the great dangers is uh, asking people to be godly for the wrong reasons. Paul and his team didn't urge people to be godly in order to earn their salvation, nor even to gain their assurance, and certainly not to gain status in the church. Instead, um, uh, Paul urged uh, the uh, Thessalonians to be godly because they belong to the coming uh, kingdom. They are to start living now as the citizens of the kingdom into which God has called them. The motivation for godly living in the here and now for those who've been converted, forgiven and justified is primarily eschatological. It's to begin now the life of the kingdom which is to come and into which we've been called. In fact, in many ways, it's the essence of the New Testament call to godliness is be who you are now that you've been called uh, into Christ and belong to his kingdom. So here is um, uh, this foundation of ministry, not simply conversion, but um, uh, producing disciples of the Lord Jesus who are holy, righteous and blameless. That's the task that we ought to have in our church. That's our week by week uh, work. And the way that we're to do it is we're to be examples, we're to give encouragement, we're to focus on eschatology. Let's um, pray. Heavenly Father, we do want to thank you for this reminder that gospel ministry is not simply bringing people to conversion, but bringing them to godly maturity. We want to long and pray that our churches would be filled with people who are indeed holy, righteous and blameless as they live in the light of the coming kingdom. Please help us as leaders to set the example that they need. Please help us to give the right encouragement. Please help us to shape their understanding of the future so that they live now for the coming kingdom that they belong to. Please would you help us to do this as we minister the gospel in our churches. We thank you um, for this webinar. Thank you for this opportunity to get together. Thank you for the chance to um, pray together and thank you for the chance to think through the implications of the new guidance uh, in different parts of the UK. Please be with us uh, and encourage us so that we might serve our churches well. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to turn um, to uh, a brief um, uh, introduction to the current uh, COVID guidance working in the different parts of the UK. And I'm going to hand over, first of all, to Andy Hunter, who's going to speak about the situation in Scotland. Thanks, John. Well, you'll be aware that Scotland's going at a slightly slower pace than England. Uh, it's also worth just noting that the Scottish calendar is a bit different from the English calendar in terms of holidays. So I always say that our July is the equivalent to England's August and that our schools broke up at the end of June and they go back in the middle of August. So we're really in the kind of dead centre of the Scottish holiday period just now. Uh, the main announcement this week uh, from the 19th of July was that all of Scotland is now in level zero, which doesn't mean no restrictions. It just means the lowest level of COVID restrictions. Uh, but there are still restrictions. I've just put a few of the kind of main ones there. This is maybe relevant for you if you're coming to Scotland on your summer holidays in the next few weeks. 
but private indoor gatherings are still restricted to eight people from four households. So while kind of small groups and things aren't taking place so much over the summer, that does mean going forward, if that remained, uh, that would still be an issue uh, for doing things in your home, uh, church-wise. Uh, private outdoor gatherings are restricted to 15 people from 15 households. Uh, weddings and funerals uh, can have up to 200 attendees, physical distancing uh, permitting. Uh, the big change, I guess, this week was that the two metre physical distancing rule was dropped to one metre. Uh, so that's for public indoor gatherings uh, with a maximum limit for public indoor events of 400. So it means that churches can increase capacity accordingly. So from having people spread out two metres apart, there's one metre uh, now between households. So that's a big help. And for my own church uh, in Glasgow, that means going from about 60 max capacity up to 100 uh, from next Sunday uh, onwards. Uh, mask wearing in churches is still required, uh, as indeed mask wearing is still required in Scotland in shops and on public transport and in various public settings. So you still have to wear your mask in church, but congregational singing is now allowed in all areas. Uh, it's allowed in levels one and two. For So some parts of Scotland that have been in level one, it was already allowed for places like Glasgow and the Central Belt. Uh, it means that from this Sunday, we will be able to have full congregational singing, albeit we'll still have to wear uh, our masks. So that's a very brief summary. The next milestone really is the 9th of August, where it's anticipated where all physical distancing would be lifted. Uh, so we're down to zero metres. But it is likely, I think, the indications from the Scottish Government are that mask wearing will still be required in various public settings such as shops and on trains and buses, but we'll wait and see uh, how that works out. So that's a little potted summary, uh, and I hope that's useful for you. Thanks, John. Thanks so much, Andy. And as I said, um, if you've got questions uh, on the guidance, uh, what it means in practice, please do direct those to Phil Topham. We'll try and answer as many as we can before half past, and then we'll carry over any extra questions to after one o'clock, um, uh, if there's more that you would like to discuss with us. Um, let's move to looking at the position in Wales and in uh, kind of England. So firstly, just updating on the situation uh, in uh, relation to uh, kind of Wales. Um, uh, again, rather like Scotland in Wales, it's not moving quite as quickly um, as the situation in England in terms of the relaxing of requirements. So in relation to the situation for churches in Wales, there is still a requirement that in churches, um, a two metre social distancing uh, be observed in relation to church. So there's no limits in the number of people who can gather in churches, but capacity is determined by social distancing and you're expected to maintain two metres social distancing at all times. Um, uh, in relation to face coverings, face coverings remain mandatory to be worn uh, inside church. So you have to continue to wear uh, face coverings by law. Uh, congregational singing in Wales is allowed. It's been allowed for some time. Um, but you have to wear a mask and you have to undertake a risk assessment. Um, and the advice is that singing should be avoided in areas where there's a high disease prevalence. Now, um, the, the original guidance contained some specific quanti quantifiable 
um, uh, data on when there is a high or a low disease preference. That's now been removed. So what is high is not um, defined. You have to work that out in your risk assessment. Um, uh, uh, we're very grateful that Dave Gobbett and Highfields Church have made their risk assessment available to us. And that's available on the FIEC website if you want to see a model of what a Welsh church has done in relation to risk assessment in connection with um, singing. In terms of meeting um, in homes, um, in homes, you can still only meet in groups of up to six people from different households. So that obviously limits the ability to have home groups, prayer meetings in homes. You can only have six people meeting from different uh, households. Uh, in relation to church, you can um, have hospitality after the service. So things like coffee afterwards are possible. But in line with the Welsh um, advice in relation to pubs and restaurants, it's advised that people be seated in groups of six that are socially distanced from one another and that there continue to be um, table uh, servants. So that's the um, situation in uh, Wales. And again, in Wales, the position is going to be reviewed uh, by the government on the 7th of August. So that's the key date to watch out for, for Welsh churches um, as to whether the uh, uh, kind of guidance in Wales uh, will be changing. That brings us to England, where things have changed most significantly in this last week from the 19th of November. We've been looking um, uh, forward to that in the past few weeks of webinars. Uh, that step four of the relaxation of the lockdown has now been uh, implemented in, in England. So what does that mean for churches and how can we um, move forwards? Firstly, just to say what the legal framework is. Um, uh, the legal framework is that now all of the legal restrictions uh, that were in place because of COVID have been um, removed. So there is no longer any legal requirement to wear face coverings in church. There's no longer a requirement to social distance uh, in church. There's no limit on the size of gatherings, either indoors or outdoors. There's no limit on the numbers of people you can have in your church building. There's no limit on the numbers of people that can attend a, a prayer meeting or a home group in a private home. There are no longer any restrictions on congregational singing. Now, strictly speaking, singing was never against the law, um, although the strong advice that government gave made it, made it quite difficult to justify uh, singing, but that strong advice has been removed. So it's clear there are now no restrictions on congregational singing. Um, there is no legal requirement to continue to collect details for test and trace. So churches are not under a legal obligation to collect details of attenders for the test and trace uh, purposes. Essentially, that same legal framework also applies to weddings and funerals. So there's no difference in relation to um, weddings uh, and funerals. There's no longer any legal restriction on children and youth work. And there is no requirement that children need to be kept in distinct uh, bubbles. So all of those legal elements that were imposed on churches have been uh, removed. There are still some uh, legal um, uh, uh, sort of obligations that churches do have to bear in mind. And actually, of course, these existed prior to COVID um, in the first place. Um, firstly, there's obviously a requirement to undertake a risk assessment. Um, uh, uh, churches are still required to assess uh, the risk of what they do. And most importantly, under health and safety legislation, churches have a requirement to take reasonable steps to protect their employees and attenders under the health and safety legislation. So to provide them with um, a safe environment. So there is still an overriding duty to act reasonably to um, mitigate uh, risks for the benefit of employees and uh, attendants. But basically the legal stipulations of things you've got to do have been removed. It all now devolves to issues of risk assessment and taking reasonable steps in your particular context. 
If we move then to the government guidance that was published for England uh, on uh, Friday, um, the government guidance um, is much less prescriptive than perhaps people um, uh, feared might be the case. So the essence of the government guidance is that in the end, everything is left to be a matter for local decision making. So um, now that the legal restrictions have been removed, it's entirely a matter for individual venues, individual local churches to make their own decisions as um, to what um, they should do. So um, uh, churches uh, uh, and the leaders of churches have the ability to either impose requirements or make recommendations of what people do. So even though there, there might not be a legal obligation, um, it, it's uh, for local uh, venues to make their own uh, decisions. Um, uh, in a meeting with government ministers this week, I think the, the guidance will be amended slightly to make very clear that local venues have the right to impose their own restrictions um, on people uh, uh, attending. So if a venue decides to say, for example, require people to wear masks, they've got every right to turn people away who won't wear masks. So the fact that it's not legally required doesn't mean to say that people automatically have a right not to wear masks in any venue. It's a matter in the end for local decision-making. And that means that this falls to um, at local churches um, to make decisions for themselves. Um, there's no specific um, guidance in uh, the government guidance for places of worship on when singing is safe. So they haven't stipulated any uh, particular circumstances in which singing is safe or any ways in which singing ought to be undertaken. So again, there's complete freedom for local churches to be able to make that decision for themselves. Perhaps the crucial element in the government guidance to bear in mind is um, uh, what's described as being crowded indoor space. Although um, the legal restrictions have been removed, the, the, the recommendation in the advice is that mitigations might be necessary if um, the place is a crowded indoor uh, space because of the um, added risks um, that are involved. So um, I think of crucial importance to churches is whether the attendance of your congregation would mean that your building became a crowded indoor space. That's not defined in any way, but once you're in the um, uh, environment of a crowded indoor space, then the expectation is that you introduce mitigations to reduce the risk, and that ought to be taken into account in your risk assessment. Government speaks about three main ways to mitigate risks. They talk about these as kind of the toolbox that's available. The three key ways of mitigating risks are potentially face coverings, social distancing, and ventilation. And if churches are a crowded indoor space, then those mitigations um, are, are recommended or suggested as ways of minimizing the danger of um, uh, COVID. Um, uh, clinically extremely vulnerable people, of whom there are something like sort of more than 3 million uh, in the UK, are under the government guidance. They're, they're not obliged to observe distancing, they're not obliged to isolate, they are advised to continue to avoid close contact, but the choice is down to them as individuals. What does this mean for the practicalities of leading churches and what we need to do as churches? Well, here are a number of things for you to bear in mind that help us um, perhaps as we think through how to make these decisions. Firstly, it's worth noting that if you're using a rented venue, the venue that you're renting, the owners of that venue can impose restrictions on those who are using their venue. And if you're a church letting your venue out, you can impose on others who are hiring your venue. So if you're renting premises, you may well be subject to the decisions of the owners of the uh, venue. I can say that from the perspective of my own local church, we use another church hall. 
We've been hoping to allow people to have their own decision about whether they continue to wear face coverings. It looks as though the church has decided that anybody using their premises is required to keep wearing face coverings. So it's not a decision that's for us anymore. It's a decision that's made by the venue um, that we're renting. So if you're renting venues, you do have to, um, in a sense, abide by whatever restrictions are imposed by those who own um, the venue. As I said, a key question becomes asking, will the church become a crowded indoor space? If all the people come who you expect to come, will it become a uh, crowded indoor space? That's really the point at which the guidance would suggest you've got to be thinking in terms of uh, mitigations. Now that might have implications um, for, for maximum venue capacity and booking. So it's probably worth thinking through what is the maximum capacity of the building if you're to avoid becoming a crowded indoor space. So if you're wanting to not have any of these mitigations, how do you make sure it doesn't become a crowded indoor space? Um, uh, 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 that might mean you need to have some kind of ongoing booking system to make sure that you don't get to the point of being crowded, but you might need a venue capacity limit. Again, the building we're renting has imposed a venue capacity limit um, that we have to um, observe. Um, uh, then you've got to think about what are the specific risks to your congregation? Um, in other words, um, not just the abstract risks generally, but thinking about what's the specific risk in your congregation. And that might involve taking into account what the particular local COVID rates are in your area, the age of your congregation, which will indicate the vulnerability to COVID, maybe the vaccine uptake amongst your congregation, and particularly the number of critically extremely clinic, uh, of clinically extremely vulnerable uh, people who will be attending church, because obviously there's a particular responsibility to try to um, ensure that they are able to be safe. So you need to think through the specific situations of um, your congregation, who's coming and what you'll be doing together uh, when you are, are gathered. Um, I think be aware particularly of the potential risks of mingling between younger and older people. It seems clear at the moment that the prevalence of COVID is particularly amongst younger people who are unvaccinated and out socialising. That raises um, challenges in churches if you have significant mixing between those who are younger and those who are, are, are older in the uh, church context. Um, think through what provision you're going to make for those who continue to maintain social distancing and those who are clinically extremely vulnerable. So although the law allows people to make their own choice, it's up to individuals. So for example, even if you allow people not to um, uh, sort of have to wear face coverings, there may well be those who choose to wear face coverings. There may well be those who want to maintain social distance um, for their own um, uh, sort of protection when they come to church. So what provision will you make um, uh, for those who still want to be able to maintain some of those uh, mitigations. That might be, for example, maintaining specific areas of the building where people can maintain social distancing. It might mean, for example, having different services where you have different uh, levels of mitigation uh, in place. So just to think through what, what will you do for those who want to maintain um, uh, social uh, distancing and uh, protect themselves. Obviously a key challenge here, I think is gonna be maintaining church unity and enabling people to feel safe to return to church. Lots of people are very keen to come back to church and not have the restrictions that have been in place. Others are more fearful and want to make sure that they will continue to be um, safe uh, in church. What is gonna work for the body as a whole that is gonna enable people to um, return uh, uh, sort of uh, safely? Um, uh, keeping people informed of what is going to happen and what is expected. I think this is crucially important. 
that as people make the decision whether to come back to church, uh, that they will know what's going to be happening. Will people be wearing masks or not? Will they be distancing or not? Will they be singing or not? It helps for people to know what to expect um, when they um, attend church and what their options uh, uh, sort of are, what the options are if they want to um, observe uh, more mitigations um, uh, for their own uh, uh, kind of benefit. Um, maintaining an online uh, option for those who don't feel able to return um, uh, in person at this point, I still think that uh, it will be a period of time before everybody feels safe to be able to return back to church. There's still a need, I think, probably to maintain an online option, whether that be live streamed or recorded services for those who don't feel um, safe um, uh, to return. I think as church leaders, it's really important that we respect the choices of all of the members of the congregation um, about whether they're going to continue to observe these mitigations um, or not. Ultimately, it's a matter of individual conscience. And whatever our feelings might be, I think we need to be very careful to avoid blaming and shaming people at this particular uh, point as they adjust to um, a, a different um, uh, environment. And I think maybe we need to um, teach the congregation and the members of the congregation to respect the boundaries that others want to observe. So if there are some people in the church that want to continue to maintain social distancing, continue to um, wear masks, we need to respect that and not, in a sense, put themselves, put them in a difficult position by approaching them and engaging them in a way that um, uh, uh, sort of doesn't reflect um, uh, the, the mitigations that they want to observe. Uh, so simple things like greeting people at the door. Are we, uh, uh, do people want to be touched? Do they want to handshake? Do they not? Uh, again, I think we need to respect the boundaries that um, people are wanting to observe for themselves. And then I think just be patient as society adjusts to this new approach. Um, uh, uh, these are very early days. Um, I think uh, people will gradually get used to um, the dropping of the legal restrictions. Um, uh, we may see people um, uh, sort of abandoning some of those um, restrictions, uh, face coverings, social distancing over the next few weeks. Uh, but I think much will depend on how the COVID statistics develop over the next six weeks. So don't expect necessarily everything to happen immediately. There'll be a gradual changing um, of attitudes and behaviour, depending on how things pan out, I think, over the next few weeks. Um, anticipating the future, just a couple of things to bear in mind here. Um, uh, remember, there's the possibility of the reimposition of restrictions um, in the autumn. Government has been very careful not to um, say that uh, these removals of restrictions are now irrevocable, um, depending on what happens with the virus, new variants, etc. So we can't guarantee that there won't be reimpositions uh, later in uh, the year. I think from a church perspective, as you make your decisions as to what to do in your local context, do be aware of the impact of reduced ventilation in colder weather. One of the key mitigations is the availability of ventilation. When it's no longer possible to ventilate buildings in quite the same way, that might have some implications for risk assessments um, and uh, what we're able to do as we gather indoors. And then lastly, um, uh, because of the Prime Minister's comments this week about COVID passports for uh, nightclubs being introduced from the end of September, that's raised uh, suspicions and concerns about whether COVID passports will be imposed for churches. I gave a lengthy interview to TWR Radio yesterday on this, which is available on YouTube. I think at this point it's just speculation. There's been no indication that churches are going to be caught up in that. 
The Prime Minister's comments have all been bound up with nightclubs refusing to follow government advice to ask for um, evidence of vaccination, and it's to do with younger people not being vaccinated. Um, so I think probably don't worry about this too much at this point. I also think there'd be some pretty significant human rights, religious freedom issues if this were attempted to be imposed on churches. So I think the, the point there is it's, it's easy to overreact to comments that government uh, makes, um, which aren't yet developed as policies, but we will keep an eye uh, on that. Well, that's a, a brief overview of where we're at in relation to um, uh, the COVID guidance across the UK and different places, and hopefully you have some thoughts for things that you need to take into account as churches as you plan. Obviously, we don't have the answers. The FIEC, FQAs have been um, adjusted um, to take account of the new regime. It really is down to you and your local leadership teams to make that decision. We're not telling you what to do. Um, I hope what we've been able to do is give you some of the things that perhaps you need to think about as you work through what it is you're going to do. Before we um, move to um, prayer, just a couple of things um, I want to say at this particular point. This is probably the last of our um, uh, sort of webinars uh, in this series of um, uh, webinars for leadership for lockdown. We've been going for the better part of 15 months. So I just want to say a few significant thank yous um, um, at this particular point. Um, uh, thank you um, uh, to all of you who've contributed to the webinars, a range of speakers on a wide variety of different topics. I'm especially grateful to all of you as pastors who've been willing to step up and um, share what's happening in your local church and put your head above the parapet. That's been hugely beneficial to others listening in to hearing um, your thinking. I would say a big thank you to the FIEC staff who've made this possible. Behind the scenes, there have been people who've been working incredibly hard week by week to make these um, webinars happen. So I'm immensely grateful to um, Phil Topham. Um, a thank you so much to Justin Gill for organizing the technology that's made it happen. For Joel, Morris, who, uh, Joel Murray, who's done all of the work of kind of editing the recordings and the podcasts and getting those um, uh, sort of available to us um, so quickly. Really grateful to Jonathan Bennett for all that he's done to help get the visuals right for um, these uh, kind of webinars. So thank you so much for all of that work that has gone on that has contributed to them. And thank you so much to you for attending on a regular basis. We've really been blessed by meeting with you and seeing you and engaging with you. And thank you for making the time to join these um, webinars. Although this may be the end of a series of weekly leadership in lockdown um, uh, webinars, um, uh, that doesn't mean that we won't be continuing to engage with the wider FIEC constituency. From September, we're going to be launching an FIEC podcast, which we think will be weekly, um, engaging with kind of a whole range of key issues. Um, so do look out for that. We um, want to make that available. Um, if there are any significant developments, I'm sure that we'll be able to hold um, webinars as needed to address with those issues. So we've learned the benefits of the webinar format. We will continue to use um, uh, sort of webinars. Um, we'll use webinars for one-off um, uh, kind of discussions about important issues that come up. So um, even if we're not going to be doing it weekly, we do want to continue to make use of this um, uh, format. And please do watch out for and make use of the um, FIEC podcast that is going to um, be uh, kind of coming. Um, Phil, I think what we'll do is we'll take um, three or four minutes of questions, if there are any questions, just to begin to get some in, and then we'll defer the rest for the end. Thanks, John. So th this is one that I think a lot of churches will be wrestling with. Uh, how do we define this crowded indoor space? I know that there's nothing in the guidance about that. Do you have any wisdom, John, on how we would, would potentially decide 
when a space becomes crowded? Because obviously that will affect how people do their risk assessments. Um, yeah, it's deliberately less vague, isn't it? And the government comments, the Prime Minister talks about an empty carriage on a tube or a full tube train. It doesn't really tell you where the middle point is. So there is nothing there. So you've got to make a reasonable judgment in the light of your circumstances. I would suggest if you've got so many people present that, that people couldn't socially distance, then at that point, you're beginning to be crowded. So you're beginning to be crowded at the point at which it's impossible for people who would want to, to maintain social distance from others. So I think that might be a criteria that's worth bearing in mind. So once it gets to the point where there are so many people that it would be impossible for anyone to observe social distancing if they want to, then I think that begins to look like a situation that's crowded. But there's, there's no specific definition of it you can turn to. You've got to make the judgment. And I think in your risk assessment, the key thing is to show why the position that you've taken is reasonable in your context. So risk assessment is very much about showing that you've thought about it and you've got a rational reason for the judgment that you've made. On the back of that, John, one's just dropped in, which dovetails nicely with what you've just been saying. Do you have any wisdom on the kind of language we should use with church members in terms of what we require? Do we say required, expect, uh, encourage, recommend? These things are optional. Yep. Obviously, there's been a lot said about language during this period. How, how, any sort of guidance or wisdom on that? Great question. I think the thing there is that you as leaders have got to decide um, what it is you're wanting people to do. So um, it's rather like the uh, must and should language that was used in the guidance. If you as leaders are deciding people coming to church have got to wear masks, for example, then the language is you need to require masks to be worn. Um, if you're giving it people individual choice, but you're wanting people to wear masks, for example, then you're recommending that masks um, be worn, but you're not requiring it. So um, I, I think those are the kind of, that's the kind of language, things that you are in a sense going to um, uh, compel people to do that you're effectively saying, you shouldn't come if you won't do this. That's really in the level of requirement and you've got the right to enforce it. If you're recommending, you're creating an expectation, but you're allowing people the freedom not to do it. And you're not saying we turn you away if you don't want to keep our recommendation. So I think require and recommend are probably the best language. John, you've not mentioned lateral flow tests as part of this. Is there a reason for that? Is that something churches should be um, considering? It doesn't appear in the guidance at all, so it's certainly not in any way recommended. I think, again, that's a matter of choice for individual local churches. If in your circumstances you felt that the risks of COVID, the dangers to the members of your congregation or the sort of willingness of people to gather together um, meant that people ought to be testing themselves before they come. Obviously, if people have taken tests or have been identified in test and trace, you should be um, telling them they shouldn't come to church. But I'm not sure that um, there's any suggestion that people need to take a lateral flow test to come to church any more than they, they are required to or need to to go to a cinema or go into a shop. But that is a decision for local church leaders to take if they really felt that that weren't necessary. I'm not really hearing any church leaders think that that's a step that's necessary at this point for their churches. And certainly government guidance doesn't indicate that that should be the case. Uh, John, just in terms of um, the kind of regular ordinances of the church, uh, baptism and communion, there was guidance about those particular areas, wasn't there, in the previous guidance, but there isn't now. So a church is free to make decisions on things like the way they administer the sacraments at communion and, and that kind of thing. What would your advice be on that? 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's no advice at all. It's up to you to decide what is reasonable in your particular context. And it's interesting at the government uh, minister's meeting I was at, it was actually some of the Anglicans were slightly concerned that the government had kind of not introduced uh, guidance to prevent the use of a common cup in communion. But in a way, that's exactly the point within the Anglican context. The use of a common cup is now um, uh, sort of a matter for the local church to decide. So there's no guidance specifically about the way that you conduct baptisms or the way that you conduct communion. John, just thinking about vaccinations, so um, churches uh, perhaps employ staff who for ethical reasons have refused the vaccines, but then as part of their work, they're meeting regularly in people's homes, that, that kind of thing. Is there any guidance about that in, in terms of how uh, employers, churches as employers, sh should deal with that if people have, have refused a vaccine for ethical reasons? I don't think there's anything specifically in the guidance that covers that. Again, it's a matter for local circumstances to work out what the risk would be. Obviously, um, where a person hasn't been vaccinated, there are two potential issues. There's the issue of the vulnerability of the person themselves to catching the virus, and there's the potential of them being somebody who would pass the virus to somebody else. I think you've then in a local context got to work out um, uh, what the risk is and whether that is reasonable. Um, so for example, does the person who you're meeting with know that you're not vaccinated and are they basically willing to accept that risk? So I think there are ways of dealing with that issue. It's simply a local risk management issue. And of course, there might be the difference between sending somebody to see a particularly clinically vulnerable person and sending someone to meet somebody who's been vaccinated and is protected. And I think it's that level of um, uh, kind of local decision making that the guidance um, asks us to um, uh, implement with wisdom. Uh, thanks, John. Just one, one or two that have uh, that have come in. Uh, just a bit, a bit of pushback on the stuff about lateral flow tests, John. And um, so they yeah. are mentioned in the guidance, okay. as in people may wish to to have them or take them before coming to church. Okay. So the question on the back of that is: Is that a consideration churches should give to the way they seek to reopen? Whether and they might just just for love of others, perhaps encourage people to consider taking a, a lateral flow test. Obviously, they're free from kind of pharmacies and, and the like. Any wisdom on that? Again, I think it's entirely a local decision in your own particular context. So um, that is exactly the kind of thing which local church leaders have got to decide for um, themselves, which will be in the light of the risk that there is, whether you think that will enable people to be feeling safer to come back to church, whether it will alienate some people from coming back to church. I think there's no answer to that question. That is simply part of the judgment you've got to make as leaders in your own particular context, knowing your particular congregation. John, how do we stop churches becoming paralysed with fear? So if we're moving back into to kind of this sense of normality, but people are still super cautious, um, how can we do that wisely uh, and, and well? People obviously want to take, take steps towards normality, but it won't be clear what that will look like everywhere. Are there ways we can stop our churches becoming kind of paralysed with fear? Um, I think uh, I, that's a really important question. I think there are a number of things. We have to be firstly honest, are our churches paralysed by fear? So my reading is that in quite a lot of churches where they've been meeting physically, certainly significant sections of the congregation have been coming out and meeting. So I think we shouldn't think by starting out that our churches are paralysed by fear and are not gathering. That doesn't seem to be the reality on the ground in most places. There may well be some people who are more fearful to come back to church at the moment. I think we need to respect that, need to recognise that that's a very real feeling that they have. Um, I think that 
probably um, this is a bigger societal issue as people adjust to a new situation. Um, I think so much will depend on what happens over the next few weeks. Do figures continue to rise, the numbers of deaths increase, or does it tail off um, and do the numbers of deaths and hospitalizations continue to be low? Some people are saying the peak of the third wave has already happened. Others are predicting much more kind of um, significant uh, uh, kind of figures. I don't, I don't think we can know. And I suspect it will be bound to take some time before people um, see their fears being set aside. I don't think it's helpful to simply say to people, don't be fearful, don't fear, um, uh, you've got nothing to worry about. We need to recognize that fear is a real issue. The probability is that time will enable people to feel more, more confident. And the, the danger for us is to make it worse by trying to force it on people too quickly. So I think, Recognize that there are plenty of people who are happy to come back, build on what you've got, watch the wider situation. I've said many times before, I don't actually think we'll be back to anything like normality with most people feeling able to come back until the mid-autumn. So we've just got to have a timescale that recognizes it will take time for people's behavior and outlook to change. Final one, John. Do you have any sense from churches around the FIC of, of what Sunday is going to look like for them uh, on the 25th? Any things you're picking up just to give other pastors an idea of, of what other churches are doing from what you've heard? Yeah, we haven't done a, a big survey of what all of our churches think. So it, this is this is purely impressionistic. When I was meeting with the kind of church representatives who were with the kind of um, government ministers, that included people from a range of denominations, including Baptist Union, Vineyard, Church of England, uh, uh, others, Salvation Army. I, I would say that the overall impression there was that people were being relatively cautious and not leaping to set aside masks, social distancing. Most were probably thinking of singing, but thinking of singing with people masked. Um, in order to protect the congregation as a whole. Um, I think I've picked up within the FIEC, um, uh, there's been a, a, a kind of a greater willingness to give people freedom of choice about whether to continue with um, things like mask wearing and social distancing. Um, uh, at the same time, most churches that I've spoken to are seeking to make provision for people who are more cautious. So that might be a particular area of seating in the church where social distancing is maintained, where people can be sure that they won't be put into a compromising position. So for some churches, they're, they're, they're for example, setting aside the part of the building that's best ventilated for those who want to continue to maintain those kinds of um, uh, sort of mitigations. Other churches, I know they've decided to make a difference between the balcony and the, the kind of the main hall room with different um, expectations in different parts of, of, of the building. For churches that are larger, um, there are actually bigger challenges because of this whole question of a crowded indoor space. So maybe they're um, maintaining multiple services so that, that the capacity never reaches that point of being crowded in one particular service. And if churches have got multiple services, then they're able to offer different levels of expectation at different services. So they might have one service in which the expectation is masks and social distancing and another service in which um, uh, there are there are no recommendations as to what people um, should do. Some churches I've spoken to have already made that decision between morning and evening services. So one service will be a service with masks and social distancing. The other will be leaving it up to individuals and then people can choose which of the services they um, they want to go to. I think lots of church leaders are waiting to see as well what their congregation members do. 
So if they offer the options of what you might call seating with more mitigations or services with more mitigations, how many of their congregations will vote with their feet for those different kind of um, aspects? So I, th I think lots of churches are, are, are adopting a, a slightly cautious approach, but they'll wait and see how the congregation responds um, uh, to the different options that are presented to them. Uh, most churches are continuing to offer something online because they recognize that not everybody is going to come back. I think there's a particular concern for catering for those who are extremely clinically vulnerable, um, who we certainly shouldn't be expecting or pressuring to come back to church without offering them the opportunity to be in an environment which is safe for them. So I think where we've got extremely vulnerable uh, individuals in our church, we've got to take particular concern to care for them. And that's not about attitudes to COVID and fear, that's to do with the fact that they are genuinely in a situation in which they are more vulnerable if they catch COVID. And I think we need to um, respect that and make sure that their needs are being catered for. So I think there'll be a wide variety of different approaches on Sunday the 25th. I suspect that what people do on the 25th might be quite different um, a month on in the light of experience and what people in their congregations are feeling. So the 25th doesn't need to be the definitive moment of uh, a change. I expect um, a gradual changing, um, both in terms of what churches offer and in terms of what congregations want to do over the next month to six weeks. That's great, John. That's all the questions. Thank you. Good. Um, and of course, um, uh, you may well continue to have questions that you want to ask, please do come to us in the FIEC office. We are here to serve you. We'll keep you updated if there are any announcements or changes, but we want to be able to provide you with the, 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 the help that you need. If you've got questions, come to us and we will attempt to meet with you individually on Zoom and, and provide you with um, the help that you need. We'd love to be able to continue to do that. Let me just pray. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to gather together. Thank you for this chance to be able to pray to you. Um, thank you for reminding us of the great work and ministry of the gospel that you've given us. I pray that you would give all of us and all of the leaders of FIEC churches real wisdom as we navigate the challenges of changes in COVID guidance. Please keep our churches united. And most of all, would you keep them focused on that great and glorious mission of sharing the good news of the Lord Jesus? Um, we recognize that there is a great harvest to be gathered in. We want to ask and pray that you would send us back out as workers into the harvest field. We pray that you would raise up many more workers who would um, help to gather that harvest in. Uh, please help us not to worry, but instead to trust in you, our sovereign father who knows what we need and who works all things out in accordance with his good plan. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the FIC podcast. For more resources for church leaders, subscribe to this podcast on your favourite podcast app and visit our website at fiec.org.uk.